The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this community of, of faith, this friends and family that come together to study Your Word, to worship You together, to have our common uh, faith uh, brought together. We ask God that You would now bless uh, the teaching of Your Word, that You would forgive our sins, for they are many, and that You would... Uh, that you would bring your grace to bear. Your power is made perfect uh, in weakness. And so, Father, we come before uh, this particular section of Scripture with great weakness and ask for you to be our great Savior. In Christ's name, amen. amen. All right. Well, we um, took a week off of E100 to hear a great little talk from Bethany Dixon about um, the, youth minist- the youth ministry and, and Beth about the children's ministry and uh, it was great. It was great, but and I'm glad to be back here uh, speaking to you. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the, we were we made our way into Exodus, and we looked at the plagues, uh, the ten plagues, and we looked at the Passover, and we looked at the Exodus. Um, so remember the Exodus. God bringing His people up out of Egypt is one of the seminal markers of the identity of the people. Uh, of Israel for all time. Uh, they are the people who belong, in a sense, belong to God. They've been chosen by God. They belong to the promised land. But He is the God who brought them out of Egypt. And, that, and He always is that. Uh, he is always the God who brought them out of Egypt. It, generations, many generations uh, afterwards. Uh, so God has remained, we've, what we've seen is that God has remained faithful uh, to His Covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, he said it was going to take a, it was going to take a while, right? He said um, he said it's going to be four hundred years in Egypt, and it was four hundred years, just like he said. And then um, and then he brought them up out of slavery, out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea in a, in a mighty act of deliverance, and now they're headed towards the Promised Land. Now we know that they're going to get to the edge and they're going to get scared and turn around. We know that that's going to happen. Uh, we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But, but right now, they don't know that. They're headed to the promised land. Um, and since we left them a couple of weeks ago, and where we pick up now in Exodus chapter 19, the, the, what happens in between there uh, is that they have received the manna from heaven. Uh, they have received the water from the rock. Remember, Moses hits the staff and the water comes out of the rock because they're hungry and thirsty. They're out in the desert and they're, they don't have anything to eat or drink. And then we see Moses get some really good advice from his father-in-law, Jethro, where Jethro is like, you have like two million people. What are you doing? And he's like, I just, they bring me their problems and I make a judgment. He's like, you need to delegate some of that. Uh, and so they had made the first vestry. Um, <laughs> What? <laughs> so if you remember, uh, was it, I guess two weeks ago, we talked about the calling of Moses, the, the burning bush. God gave him a sign. He said, he said you're going to go down there and this will be the sign that it is truly me, it's truly God who sent you. 
that when you return from the land of Egypt, bringing them up, you will worship me on this mountain, which I think is a terrible sign. You've got to go through a lot in order to get back. It would be much better if you'd given a sign on the front end. That's what Moses would have liked. But he says, no, your sign's going to be on afterwards. Although, of course, he saw many, many signs of power uh, all, all through there. He knew that God was with him uh, all the way through. But this is where they returned to, Mount Sinai. That's where the burning bush was, and now he is back there with the people of God, and he is, uh, and we receive the Ten Commandments. So we're in Exodus chapter 19. It's, uh, I think it's um, chapter 21 of the E100 book. So if you're going through the E100, Essential 100 book, it's chapter 21. Uh, I, incidentally, I, I am going to order some more this week. I hope they'll be in next week. We've got a few people who are still asking, so I'll order about 10 more of those uh, Essential 100 books. And they're back at Mount Sinai. Now that he has uh, taken them out of Egypt, uh, he is reminding them that he chose them centuries ago and, uh, by, by choosing their, their forefather, Abraham, uh, the miraculous birth of Isaac, and on through there. And he says, Now I am staking my claim upon you and showing you how you are to live. Now, this is how you, as my people, reflect my own glory and my character. Um, I would say that the Ten Commandments are one of the towering peaks in all of Scripture. Uh, one of the sort of um, places of, of um, well, that's, uh, if I were to say a place of gravity, that's sort of opposite of a, a towering peak, I guess. But, but you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's one of the weightiest places uh, in Scripture because the moral fabric of all that we are commanded is centered right here. And in fact, it's one of the towering peaks in human history because the substance or the basis of the moral fabric of at least the Western world is centered on the Ten Commandments. Right here, given uh, in, uh, in Scripture, Exodus chapter 20. And, and so, I mean, they have tremendous impact. They have been on, um, you know, on courtroom doors and, and uh, walls and, and church walls uh, ever since the time of, of Christ. But even before that, I mean, this, is, this was the... These were belonged to the people of Israel. Probably weren't as widespread before um, Christianity, but I mean they really have a remarkable, remarkable impact. So we are going to talk about the fearsomeness of the law, and the substance of the law, and the fulfillment of the law. That's going to be our uh, our three points in this the remaining thirty minutes. The fearsomeness of the law, the substance of the law, and the fulfillment of the law, uh, and what we see in Exodus chapter 19 is that this is going to be a big deal. I mean, you, you can't just show up for this sort of unprepared. It's going to be a big, big deal. It is the big, the, the magnitude of it is lost on us because we've heard them so many times. And we have Jesus and we have the whole rest of the scripture. And, we, and, and, and I doubt don't murder was like revolutionary uh, to these people. But it was, nevertheless, it wasn't just that, that the idea of the law was, uh, was revolutionary, but it was the voice of God commanding, this is how you will uh, obey me, and this is how you will proclaim who I am to the nations by living this. 
So, it's a big deal. So chapter 19 is all about how they are to prepare themselves. So on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people. So this is God telling Moses uh, why this is important and how to prepare the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, this is important, I want you to hold on to this. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak uh, to Israel. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now we're going to hold on to that because in our third point, uh, the fulfillment of the law, we're going to come back to that uh, necessary point. But God is saying that this is how you, uh, you're a nation of priests, not that you all are functioning in the temple, but that you all are uh, presenting as you're proclaiming to the nations the pagan nations around you, uh, that I am, the, I am the only God. I am the one true God. So you're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. You're set apart. You're chosen by me for my purposes. Where am I? Verse, uh, let's skip down to um, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe you forever. It's going to be a spectacle because it needs to make the impact that I intend. I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain, or even to touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. That's a pretty big or else. Don't touch it or else, right? No hand shall touch it, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether the beast or man, he shall not live. In other words, you can't grab him, but you're going to have to stone him. Um, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall, come upon, uh, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So, you have to be totally clean. Uh, get, take a bath. No sex. That's what he's saying to get yourself ready for this. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Hurricane Michael descends upon Mount Sinai. It is a fearsome blast, 
a terrible storm uh, of holiness. Uh, and the people are quaking uh, at the sight of God's presence. Why? This is the same God who has been the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They followed this God all along. Why would He present Himself in such a scary way with such fearsomeness and um, scary, scary and defined boundaries? What do, what do you think? Why this way? It got their attention, didn't it? Yeah, it got their attention. What else? He means business. He's, he's t- told them to do things before, and they backslide or whatever you want to Right, call. right, right. And he, he said, this is serious. I'm, I'm doing this. He, yes, he wants them to understand the importance of what is happening here. I think, there's, I think you're absolutely right. And I think uh, there is even more to it. Because this isn't the wizard behind the curtain. You know, you remember the fearsome Wizard of Oz, and then the little dog goes by there, and, and oh, he's just a sweet little man, and um, he was just trying to make himself look big. That is not what is going on. This is the great or else of the great I am. So this is God himself, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and stating that to transgress his law is to become unholy, and unholiness cannot live in the face of holiness. Holiness, as a matter of righteousness, as a matter of justice, must consume unholiness. And we want that, right? We want to live in a, in a society where evil is condemned. The problem for that is that when there is evil in our own hearts or in our own actions, then we stand condemned. So I want to say, just step back a little bit from the Ten Commandments and say that there are theologians understand three uses of the law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but in any law. And it, whether this kind of works uh, for whether it's uh, thou shalt not murder or thou shalt um, uh, look a certain way. Thou shalt be cool. I mean, uh, the laws of society works the same way because there's always an if-then. If you are this way, then you will be approved or, or whatever it is. But the, the first use of the law is civil order. We might call that the bridle. It puts us in order. Like, don't speed. All right, that's a good law, uh, and it, it keeps things in order. Um, if you think about do not murder, that's not just an offense to God because of His character, which, which it is, but it actually, uh, to murder is to obstruct a safe society. And so, it's good for us. We need to have a law that says do not murder, or else. There has to be consequences for that. So, uh, the, or if I say to my kids, eat your vegetables. Like, you cannot have dessert if you do not eat your broccoli. Like, that's a, that's a law, and, and, um, and that's good order, right? That's good. It's just first use of the law. Uh, the, law the law is good. Um, that's the first use, civil order. You're teaching people how to be good citizens. Second use of the law, you might call it the mirror. And I actually referenced this in my sermon uh, a little bit today. You look into the law of God and it tell, tells you what is out of place in your life. Like you look in your, in your mirror and, um, and see where, how your hair is out of place, if you, if you have any. Um, it is, um, I mean, you know, or, or if your shirt's wrinkly or whatever it is. So you look in the mirror and it tells you what's out of place. 
So you look into the law and it, look, you, it reflects back to you what is out of place in your life. The problem is, on a, on a scale of holiness, if it's out of place in your life, it's, you have a, a, a demerit already. You are, you are declared unholy. You can't, to fix it is good and necessary, but it doesn't mean that it's not already on your record. Does that make sense? So like, for instance, um, I'm doing a good job lately of honoring my parents. I mean, they live way far away, so it's, it's easy. But, um, uh, but I am, uh, at least today, unscathed in that commandment. But I still have a record because I was a teenager once, right? So, I mean, it's, it's, and, and, and it's similar to uh, in, in all of your areas of your life. Um, and so we talk about uh, the fearsomeness uh, of the law in the sense that... Um, that the law is is like a, a gleaming. It's not a. Um, it's like a gleaming wall of righteousness that we cannot get over. It's not. Uh, it's not bad. It's good. The problem is not that the law is bad. The pro- The problem is that we're bad. And we're. And what I mean by that is we're fallen, right? So the law says this. Says you are to be holy. This is. This is your. Uh, standard, and in fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, says it's not just about whether it's not just getting through life with not actually murdering anybody, not actually committing adultery. Uh, it's getting through life uh, with the in, the intention of your heart. Jesus says, if you if you hate someone in your heart, it's the same thing as murdering them. That is a wall we cannot get over. It's so the law looks back at us like a mirror and, and we find their con- condemnation. Um, and, and that's the second use of the law. Now the third use of the law is a guide. And that's actually, I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. It's, it's actually controversial within theological circles. Uh, but for Christians who have been saved by grace, it's, it's a, a grace to us to teach about how, to teach us how um, to please God. And I think there's some utility with that. But you know how it is, when, you, when someone tells you what to do, what do you naturally want to do? The opposite, right? You know you're not supposed to speed. Is that keeping you from speeding? No. No. So, if you... The law describes a beautiful life. If, if, you, if you all would quit speeding, then your insurance rates would be lower. The death rate would be lower. You would use less gas, and therefore uh, the gas rates would be lower. But the law cannot produce in you the thing that it demands. Unless there's a cop right there, and then you slam on the brakes and you follow the law because it's to your own benefit, right? That's how the law works. The law says you're in trouble, and you say our response is to say that I'm only going to follow it if I can, um, if I'm going to get caught not following it. But I'm going to break it as far as I can get away with it. That's just that's fallen nature. It's fallen nature. Um, this is what St. Paul said in Romans chapter 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Like Paul seems like a pretty regular guy there, right? Don't covet. What do you mean? <laughs> I want that. Um, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Which is to say, if there wasn't a speed limit, 
it wouldn't matter how fast you went. But apart from the law, sin lies dead. But with the law, once the law is in place and tells you what is good and right, then once you transgress that, you're toast. And I think that is why God comes in, in such a fearsome capacity. He does not come with unicorns and rainbows because it is the consequences of transgressing the law are fearsome. He, the people are right to be afraid. The law is good. So the fearsomeness doesn't mean it's evil or bad. It just means that it is serious business. Yes? Is this the first place where they are going? The people are going to get, be gathered to hear the voice. I think so. It's a really good distinction and a good question. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, they've seen the pillar. They they understand God's their relationship to God. But is this the first assembly? Maybe I'd have to look back. I'm not exactly sure about that. Um. All right. So that's that's the fearsomeness of the law. And so now I want to just talk about briefly the substance. I don't think it's going to do a lot of good to just go through and talk and show you where you've, bro- you've broken uh, each one. But we want to talk about the substance of the law. Um, so Moses comes back down uh, from Mount Sinai and says, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Right? The good news, they say, what's the good news? The good news, I've talked him down to ten. Right? <laughs> so what's the bad news? Adultery is still in there. That's what it says. So. I'm sorry, that was probably a little off color. But, um, so this is, what he, this is the way he starts off. This is the way he starts off. He says, um, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, um, that is not new information. But again, he is defining himself. Uh, and them, defining them in relation to him. And he says, I am. Remember, Moses says, who shall I say sent me at the burning bush? Who is this? I am. I am that I am. That is who, that is my name. Uh, I am uh, that I am. I will be what I will be. Uh, God, that is, he is proclaiming his own name. I am. I am the Lord your God. Um. He has demonstrated who He is through His covenant faithfulness, uh, through His power over Pharaoh, uh, through His power over nature, uh, through His char- character as, as one who delivers His people and defeats His enemies. He's demonstrated to them that He is the Lord, their God. He has the right to speak absolutely now over their lives because He is the one who brought them out of the house of Egypt. Uh, there is, and in fact, he says, I'm the Lord your God. There is a mutual possession here. They belong to him, but he, in a sense, belongs to them. Not in the sense that he has to do what they say, but in the sense that um, the, the way that my child would say, um, call me, you're my dad. Or you might say to your parents, I, you know, you're my, my father. We don't mean we possess them, but there is a, we own them, but there's a possession there. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a holding on to. 
And that's the way that, that He is their God. I am the Lord your God and you are my people, He often says um, to them. So He is the God whom they worship and his pe- he is, uh, they are His people whom He has chosen. So we often talk about the, tab- uh, the, the law in, in terms of two tablets. And we, we think of Moses carrying the tablets. And the first tablet uh, of the law is the, the first four commandments because they have to do with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the next tablet of law is the sixth um, that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. They really are, the first four are God-oriented, and the second um, six are, or the next six are um, sort of horizontally, um, humanly oriented. Uh, So that's why Jesus says, all the law and the prophets can be boiled down to those two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Again, that's a bar that we cannot uh, cra- um, uh, climb because it is a, it is, um, I mean, you can't love God with all your, all your heart. Your heart is going to be divided. But nevertheless, that's what it is. Um, and then love your neighbor to the same degree that you love yourself. So let me just read through uh, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This, is the, this first commandment, I would say, is the most important. Martin Luther said, you cannot break commandments 2 through 10 without breaking commandment number 1. Why is that? Because if, you've separate, if, you, if you're transgressing the law, you've, made your, you've usurped his position with making yourself God over him or, or money or whatever it is that you do. So, so, um, so to have any, to transgress the law is to have a God over God. So that's, it's, that's the foundation. Uh, no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It does not mean you shouldn't have statuary in your homes. It just means um, it means don't create idols. Don't uh, have things that you carved images that you bow down to. Uh, I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Interestingly. So, the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, the sins of the righteous—I mean, the the um, the righteousness, the blessing of the righteousness to thousands of generations—and you look at your life, and you can look back over the thir- three and four generations and see sin in your family that you may still be paying the consequences for, but you also have righteousness for thousands of generations, and our life is kind of a mixed bag of blessing uh, and curse. So that is one and two. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which means emptily. You should not take it emptily. Uh, you should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall do, not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day 
and made it holy. Now, we have a hard time not working uh, on the Sabbath day. Uh, there's a lot of debate as to which is the, which, what is the Sabbath day for, for Christians. And we actually are talking about that in the sermon um, that, that the author of Hebrews talks about the Sabbath as rest from um, our own good works. Um, meaning we don't rely on our good works for salvation. We rely on the, on the righteousness of Christ. That Christ is our Sabbath. So that's the first tablet. No gods, no idols. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain and uh, keep the Sabbath. Second tablet. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and the Lord your God is giving you. That's number five. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not lie. And last one, number 10, you shall not covet. Um, it says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. It's an appropriate response. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. People stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. It's not how we typically like to think of God as thick darkness, fearsomeness, but we can go through each of those laws and see where we stand condemned. I can remember when I was uh, in Young Life, uh, which is a parachurch ministry for high school students, was very influential in my own coming to Christ. I, I can remember my uh, Young Life leader, his name was Ben, uh, blonde hair, he was in college at the uh, University of South Carolina, he was super cool. And I can remember him standing in front of us with a, uh, like a three-ring binder, and on each sheet he had written one commandment, saying, how do you think you're doing on this? You shall have no gods before me. Oh, you're probably not bowing down to idols, but what about uh, the affirmation of others? What about you know, um, your grades? And he said, ah, you're, let's, let's just say for the sake of argument that you're, you hadn't made this one. And he went through. I just, the main thing I remember is when he got to honor, he was standing in front of, I don't know, 100 you know, high school students. He got to honor your father and mother. He just looked at us and went, just chucked it. He <laughs> just crumpled it up and threw it over his shoulder. Um, but his point, I mean, he basically got us down. He said, oh, you probably, you probably not murdered anybody. Um, and, but he, he basically got us down to like 30% and said, you, you need a savior. But you could actually go through each one in, a, in its own way and see where in some way you've transgressed uh, that law. Um, and, and so it's, it's very, uh, again, it, it's, the law is a, it describes the perfect life. The law just cannot create in us the thing it requires. The law cannot create in us the thing it requires. So what are we to do? Well, the third point is the fulfillment of the law. And it may not be um, uh, surprising that we're going to go right to Jesus there. Hebrews 4, which is our epistle passage today, says he was, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. In other words, he knows exactly what you have experienced. 
And he is the only one who has, um, who has fulfilled the law, not just externally, but internally. And who has done so not out of, um, you know, because the cop was around the corner, but because he loved God. And he loved the law. And, uh, and so he, what that did was qualified him to be our atoning sacrifice. To be our substitute uh, there on the cross. Because he was without sin. That actually is hard for some folks to understand. But that Christ himself lived the perfect life that we should have lived. Martin Luther said, To fulfill the law is not just to do the law, but to do it with a glad heart full of love for the lawgiver. And Jesus is the one who's done that. So Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and which makes... Him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on the cross because He was the unblemished Lamb. And what has happened there is that He has, where we have fallen short in the law, He has uh, succeeded and He has, instead of um, glorying in that success, He has given us His success. He has imputed to you His own righteousness and our sin has been imputed to Him, transferred to Him. And he took this, the punishment for our sin. Which is why like when God, when he calls out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and there's no answer. Because the first time in the cosmos, God the Father could not look on God the Son. Because he, who, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, um, we become holy. We become by grace what the law requires. Because Christ is the fulfillment of the law, and you're in Christ, then you have fulfilled the law. His fulfillment is given to you. Uh, his report card, uh, was, was your name was written on it. And this is what 1 Peter 2.9 says. You who believe in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You see this, He's using that same language we heard in Exodus 19, where God said, if you obey Me, then you will be to Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that is what is true of you in Christ. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says this. He says, You who believe in Christ, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's talking about Sinai. You have not come to that. For they could not endure the order that was given, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. 
you've come to the new heavens and the new earth because in Christ, you get everything that is, was due to Christ. So Christ is the fulfillment of the law, whether it's the Ten Commandments or any of the other laws in the Old Testament or any of the instruction of Jesus or the apostolic um, instruction. Christ is the fulfillment of all of it and it all belongs to you. Your name is on the report card. Your name is on the gold medal. And you get the New Jerusalem. So the Ten Commandments, towering, but ultimately, even they do, they do show us, they describe a good life. If nobody committed adultery, if nobody um, murdered, if, ever, if no one had any gods before God, we would all have a, we'd have a wonderful society, and yet it stands to condemn us because we have fallen short. And Christ has fulfilled that on our behalf. So that's really what I want to say, but I want to open it up to any uh, questions, something not clear. I don't want to say that you shouldn't try to fulfill, or you shouldn't try to do them. I mean, we want to be real clear about that. Should, should we try to do now? What you should do is look at Christ and do what He wants you to do. And, and this is a good measure. <laughs> it's a good measure of what He wants you to do. I mean, you see the signs of the bumper sticker to say, Obey the Ten Commandments. Well, that's not going to get you into heaven, but it is a good way to start pleasing Christ. Questions? Good job, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Anything? That's ah, a first. All right. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.